Right. Podcast voice time. Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated Second World War air power podcast. <laughs> Hedge hopping with me, Matt Bone. I'm watching my guest laughing at me as we speak because my guest, I'm delighted to say, is the wonderful David O'Keefe, who we had back to talk about, well, Dieppe, because I think that's what mm. most people have him on to chat about. But we're not going to be chatting about that today because he has been involved in something that's been quite fascinating, especially for me, because he's been looking into the disappearance of Flight 19, which is the famous flight of Avengers, which disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. Were they abducted by aliens? Was Spielberg right with close encounters? We will find out. Because one documentary has landed, another one is coming, but we're going to chat to Dave about it and see what they found so far. So Dave, how have you been? Welcome back. Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, I guess uh, jumping from one conspiracy to another. And I guess, you know, we can wrap this up. Spielberg was right. Aliens have them. That's it. We're good. There we go. What do you want to talk about? Let's talk hockey. <laughs> uh, it's this, this is, this is great. Cause you know, the purists will, I'll get a few tweets saying we're not doing second world war now. Cause this is after the war. Well, and things like that. But flight 19 is probably everybody has looked at it and read about it at some point. And you guys went after this with some, yeah, with some pretty hefty tools, didn't you? Oh, did we ever? Yeah, we had the research vessel, the Petrel, Paul Allen's ship. Unfortunately, that's been mothballed. They're out of the business now. But Paul Allen's research vessel was state of the art. It was absolutely amazing. And it was captain, the expedition was captained by Rob Kraft, who you know, has found, I think, almost every single American aircraft carrier. He's found the Hornet. I believe he was in on the Japanese carrier search. He was in Guadalcanal. He's done some amazing stuff. And it, in many cases, it comes down to the vessel. It comes down to the RVs or ROVs that they have on board, which can go down to something like 20,000 feet under. So we're, you know, able, or at least we had the tools at our disposal to go further than anybody has ever on this case. And it is still World War II, even though the war has been over for three or four months at this particular point. It's December 1945. All the guys involved on this flight who disappeared that night were World War II vets. And we're talking about Florida, which is the main training base for the United States Navy aviators during the Second World War. So, you know, they're still very much in World War II mode, even though the war is over and they're starting to unwind. So it's pushing the envelope, if you will, I suppose, when it comes to World War II, but it's still there. Yeah, because I think that's the key point, because we think about Flight 19 as a training flight, and most people's minds go immediately, these are rookies, but they're not. Who were these guys? We'll talk about the planes later, but who, who were this, this group of men? Well, there were a mix of naval aviators and Marine Corps aviators. Um, most of them, if not all of them, were combat vets, particularly Taylor, who was the flight leader. And when I say flight leader, he was not the ranking officer. That was Powers. But he was the one in, uh, in charge of this navigational uh, training exercise. So he had uh, full control that particular day over them. When they left in the early afternoon of, or in the morning, I should say, from Fort Lauderdale on what was supposed to be a routine training mission. Fly out, follow your navigation pattern, drop some bombs on a target, you know, an exercise target out at sea, and be home in time for dinner and drinks. And sadly, they never showed up again. So let's, let's start breaking Flight 19 down. So it's the good old Grumman Avenger, which has been around for a while, 
Sturt, very sturdy aircraft. Nothing fancy about them, just standard Navy Absolutely aircraft. nothing fancy. As far as we know, nothing fancy. I've been through the files, and they seem in many cases to be stripped down. For instance, they didn't even have IFFs on them, the international, or what is it, international friend and foe. For some reason, they had been taken out beforehand as if they were retrofitting them with something else. And it just seemed to be, from all indications, that this was just a, a milk run. You know, something that you would do normally as part of your routine, you get up, you take a bunch of students. And when we say students, this was, um, I'm not sure if it was an advanced course, but it certainly wasn't an elementary navigation course, but they were going off and they were going to fly off the Eastern coast of Florida. And uh, that's part of where the mystery begins, simply because there was no proper flight plan that was filed. A lot of what we know, and this is the tough part when doing this as a historical researcher, is based on assumptions that have been made over the years. In other words, it's assumed that they flew the course that was left on a chalkboard, and which is interesting because Taylor, uh, Charles Taylor, was used to flying into Miami. And he had only recently been sent up the coast, not far, but sent up the coast of Fort Lauderdale. But there is no confirmation other than what was left in the classroom on the board that this was the route that they were going to fly. And there is a lot of controversy over that because when the first distress call comes in, Taylor believes he's over the Florida Keys, which are south southwest of Florida, while the rest of his flight believes that they're somewhere over the Bahamas. So that's a massive oversight to start with. So unfortunately, there's no confirmation. Well, at least no confirmation from the ground sources, that is. And that's the thing is, you know, reading about this over the years it's all this was their flight plan etc cetera, etc cetera. and yeah. that's the key there isn't one they've literally just taken off to i don't want to say have a jolly but they're they're out to just pra practice navigation fly around for a bit and come home yeah routine i mean there was a big party on the base christmas party the night before there's been speculation that perhaps the taylor was hung over the rest of them were hung over and they weren't really paying attention another theory is that taylor being the instructor would simply hang back. And if any mistakes were made, he would allow his students to make their mistakes and then try to correct it until they got in over their head. And so it could very well be that he was just sitting there watching them making mistakes and whatever else, and then trying to do the calculations himself about where they were. And then he ended up taking over, realizing that they were off course. But that's the key. The key is speculation. And a lot of the speculation comes from the fact that the data pool for this is relatively thin when it comes to evidence. We do have spotty message traffic from them. And I say spotty because it's not continual every single minute. There are gaps in it. So we are trying to trace as best as we can what was going on between ground control and, of course, Taylor. But more importantly, we are picking up evidence of an argument going on between Taylor, who is the flight instructor, and the senior officer, Powers, who was one of the students. And at one point, they are arguing over where they are and which direction to fly to. Now, you have to remember that the standard operating procedure at this time, as soon as an emergency is called, ground control is supposed to take over. And the fascinating part is... They have now converted all the direction-finding stations that were used to hunt U-boats along the eastern coast and in the Gulf of Mexico. They've turned them into search and rescue. 
So the idea was that as soon as you declare an emergency, you are supposed to continue your transmission of your radio. You don't have to say anything, but just keep clicking. So you're sending off a signal. And what they will do is they will try to get a fix on you. And this actually is done. There are some fixes that are taken, well, not fixes. There are signals that are taken, some hits, direction finding hits, but then a fix is made roughly about a hundred miles off of Daytona Beach. So at that particular point, we know they're on the East Coast. Taylor thinks they're somewhere in the Gulf at this particular point. Why? We have no clue. But for whatever reason, that message of where they were, there was no record of it ever being sent to the aircraft. Because at that particular point, both Taylor and Powers are arguing with each other. If we just go East, if we just go West, we'll be able to hit land. Problem is, there neither one of them has any certainty as, as to whether they're East or West of Florida. And Florida, you can fly over it probably in what, about less than an hour if you're just going straight across. So it's a relatively thin peninsula. So had they been able to get the fixed location to the aircraft, then that argument would have been settled. And they would have then been able to basically steer due west to 70 degrees, and they would have hit Florida somewhere. As far as we can see, that did not happen. There's also another problem with the fix. The fix isn't like today, where we have radar, which pinpoints you to within 30 feet of where you actually are, or 30 yards. The margin of error, in 1940, even at 1945 standards, was 100 miles for a fix. This is one of the reasons why direction finding was good to a degree when it came to hunting U-boats, but it wasn't fantastic because the margin of error was still pretty big. So when you're looking at aircraft who are flying at about, well, I guess they're cruising close to 200 miles an hour at this point, about 180, I think it is, and you get a fix off of Daytona, uh, it can be anywhere within a hundred mile radius of that particular fix. So that becomes problem. But again, the key is we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking about it right now had the, the message with that fix reached those pilots in the air and there's no record it ever did that's remarkable isn't it because you you just i'm sorry you're doing the math isn't it so even if it takes yeah. even if you pass that up the chain and it goes to someone else who will make the call that would be what 20 minutes half hour at best yep and, and that's another 100 miles off so your search area is going up by at least a factor of two immediately oh at least such a short period of time yeah Oh, at least. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, they're doing the best they can. They've got the direction finding all the way up and literally they're getting hits all the way from Florida, all the way up to Maine and across into, I think it's even Texas from the Gulf. So they're triangulating as much as they can, but it's, it's not a perfect art or a perfect science at this time. So as a result, there is that incredible margin of error. And the fact that the aircraft are still flying, you're absolutely right. Every minute they're going further and further away from that. And the key is that, like I said, the standard operating procedure was supposed to be that ground control takes over command. But because they seem to be flying in a northeast pattern and they're heading out towards the sea, their radio transmission starts falling off. And from what we can see, it looks like they were not getting the messages. In other words, they were going further and further and further away. And for whatever reason, the land-based radios could pick up their chatter between each other, but then it started to fade and fade and fade. So that leads us to believe that they continued flying 
east, perhaps thinking mistakenly, like Taylor did, that they were over the Gulf of Mexico, as opposed to the eastern seaboard of Florida, and that they were heading east, thinking they were going to hit land, when in reality, they were just going to their doom out in the middle of the Atlantic. So we're starting to lose contact here. Let's just get the numbers right. So how many air crew are we talking here on board the, the flight? Well, there were supposed to be 15. One of them booked off. You have five Avengers. So there's 14 men, 14 men that go off on this. And of course, as you know, that means there's only five pilots because the Avenger has a crew of three. Um, one would be a radio operator. One is a tail gunner, basically or a turret gunner. And then you have them. And then, of course, the other curveball in all this is when they declare the emergency, they send up a rescue aircraft, several rescue aircraft. One of them is a Martin Mariner. And the Martin Mariner, if I'm not mistaken, replaced the PBY. And when it went up, it was notorious for having fuel leaks. And so within about half an hour of taking off, one of the Martin Mariners just suddenly disappears itself with another 13 men on board. So on the night of December 5th, 1945, you have 27 naval aviators and Marine Corps airmen who never come home. You know, they're gone, 27. This is one of the worst disasters in American military history or in naval history when it comes to peacetime. 27 men who go out and never come home in one day. So this is quite something. And that, of course, adds a new complexity. You know, in other words, where did the Martin Mariner go and how come we haven't been able to find any parts of it over these years? Mm. So, so what do the Navy do? So they've got a big disaster on their hand. Everybody's probably still slightly hungover. Yeah. It's not the best situation to start sending out a massive search. What, what's the weather doing? They do, the though. They do. Well, the weather, the weather is what you get typically in Florida. It's a little bit mixed bag of everything, right? You know, the day they went up, it started out, it seemed to be fine. There was a little bit of cloud. It started to get cloudier and it became worse as night started to come in. There were isolated storms here and there. And then for the next few days, it was kind of rough and choppy. And the conclusion was by the Navy that after a day or two, there's no way that even if they had ditched, they would have survived floating around. So it's, it's a pretty scattered kind of thing, but the search went on for days. I mean, that's one thing. It's one of the biggest searches, if not the biggest search up until that. I'm assuming it was the biggest search up until that time for sure. Uh, and probably considering that they lit up everyone right up the eastern seaboard of the United States, it's probably goes down in history as the biggest uh, until the Challenger, the uh, space shuttle, when it blew up, you know, back in 1986. Now, that also, believe it or not, plays a role because a lot of this, the Flight 19 saga really didn't, it attracted some attention at the time, then it faded away. But back in the 1960s, there was a, a renewed interest or an interest started in what we now call the Bermuda Triangle. And I, I'll state it right here. It's a conspiracy theory. I mean, there is no, you know, oh, I'm going to get on. that story. I got it. I got it. Here's the balloon. Let me I can it. hear people okay. clicking stop on the oh, podcast. I know. They're now. like, oh, I got to leave now. Yeah. I mean, there are strange occurrences and there are coincidences, but there is nothing there to prove that has anything to do with any type of bizarre thing that is happening. It just happens to be that there was a lot of traffic in that area. So things do happen. It's like claiming the, you know, the English Channel also has something going for it. <laughs> um, you know, but it's just the volume of activity in that area. There have been some unexplained things and lar largely because we just 
haven't really been looking. But it was the Flight 19 disappearance that started this uh, attraction with the Bermuda Triangle, and then everything else kind of was lumped into it. If there was any kind of anomaly or any type of disappearance, Bermuda Triangle, Bermuda Triangle, Bermuda Triangle. And it took on a life of its own. So when the Challenger, believe it or not, blew up in 1986, of course, NASA was there, the United States Navy, the Air Force, et cetera, they were all doing their search and recovery for all pieces. And so what they were doing is incredible for 1986, doing all this mapping of the seabed. So now that has been released. All that material has been released. And you can imagine for people who are looking into Flight 19 and other disasters off the Eastern seaboard, this data is incredible because it's been able to locate, or they did locate all potential types of wreckage right down to things the size of your fist along the area. So now it's just a question of painstakingly going through each one of them, you know, going down and diving if you can get there or sending an ROV down and just basically a process of elimination. But to do that, obviously we're starting where the fix was. And we're drawing a 100-mile search radius around there. And then basically, it's kind of like mowing the lawn, where you painstakingly have to go over every single inch of the seabed and to do this. And most of it's not too bad. When I say not too bad, I'm not down there doing it. But when I say it's not too bad in the sense that it's not that deep. But when you get to the eastern fringe of that 100 mile, then you got the shelf that goes down. And we're talking about 20, 30,000 feet below. So it could very well be that those aircraft did stay together. They did ditch and they ended up just sinking to the bottom 20 or 30,000 feet below. And it'll be a while before anybody finds them. <laughs> but if they're in the other part, the part that, that is more shallow and not too far off Daytona, then, you know, it's likely that they will be found eventually. But it's just, uh, it's painstaking work. It's painstaking work. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to History Hacks Hedgehopping. Well, let, let's get into the work. So let's give the documentary a plug. So when you first came on the show, you cryptically mentioned that you were working on something that Lawrence Fishburne was also involved in. And it turns out yeah. that that was History's Greatest Mysteries, which was, History Channel in, in over your way, Sky History over here, which yeah. is a nice break from the wall-to-wall -wall tutors that Sky History tends to do. How did this come together? Because, yeah, we're talking RV Petrol, there's some, some big players in this. How did you get involved in the documentary? And then we can start getting into the search itself, because it takes an interesting turn halfway through when you get off the boat. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, it all started, I mean, this was something that Wayne Abbott, who was my production partner on DF Uncovered and a whole bunch of other documentaries we've done together, Wayne and I have been working together for years. We had actually proposed something like this for history television, and we were almost, we almost had a green light about five years ago for it. And then at the end, there was a change of command in history television. They went a different way. A couple of years later, Wayne's son was working for Lone Media um, Production House out of uh, Maine. And they had proposed the same thing to History Television or History Channel in the States. And so basically we got in touch and said, hey guys, look, why don't we marry up on this? Because we've already laid the groundwork. We have all this incredible research. And they said, well, this is great because we've got the RV Petro, we've got Bob Kraft and let's do this. So we married up with Kurt Wolfinger and Lone Wolf Media. And it was just absolutely fantastic. And so the first time we went down there was when we went out on the Petro, which you see in the documentary. 
And that was quite interesting because the way Wayne and I were brought in, we were brought in almost like the intelligence officers about to brief Montgomery before Market Garden. <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, you know, here you are dealing with Rob Kraft. The man is a legend, right? And so you're sitting there and I had to do this briefing. And then, you know, part of it was the Montgomery thing. And part of it was Alec Baldwin from Hunt for Red October, right? You know, where it's like, Jesus, you know, you're going into the White House and you've got to give a briefing kind of thing. But Rob was absolutely wonderful. His whole team is great. And they had already done a lot of the spade work. And so as a result, you know, we were coming in kind of doing the nuances and the finishing touches. And then, of course, there was there there's other possibilities, too. There's also a couple of theories that the flight may have because of the dissension, as I mentioned earlier, the growing dissension, they may have broken ranks and all tried to make it back to Florida on their own. That was a theory that was posited by a guy by the name of John Meyer, who sadly has passed away. John was a fascinating character, amazing character, actually. Uh, we met him when Wayne and I started researching our own. But he had been looking into this for 20 years, and he had lost literally his house, his family fortune, because he had spent his own money looking for these aircraft for wow. so many years. He thought he had found them. John's an interesting character. Of, of, he was a Vietnam chopper pilot who had some of the most incredible stories. And part of the reason that was that he was driven by this story was not the treasure hunt aspect, but because he had been rescued after being left for dead in Vietnam. He had been shot down and he had been severely wounded. And somebody, and he never knew who it was, came back and plucked him out just before the VC got him. And so as a result, he just felt that this was the kind of thing that he needed to pay back. In other words, these guys were, you know, obviously they weren't still out there, but somebody had in his mind given up on them and he wasn't going to do that. Now, part of his research, part of his theory was that there is a possibility that they broke ranks, even though military purists would say no way and naval aviators would never do that. If they're going to ditch, they're all going to ditch together. And that's fair enough. But as a researcher, he had to test all the hypotheses. So part of the hypothesis, and with the evidence of the argument, that could well exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's it's a it's plausible, okay? It's plausible. So as a result, he ended up tracking a lot of potential crash sites on land. So while Rob Kraft and the Petrel and were offshore doing the stuff underwater. Wayne and I were onshore taking a look at the potential crash sites on land. Now, of course, that it, what makes it really difficult is what I mentioned earlier, is that Florida was the main training base for naval aviators during the Second World War. So you can imagine the amount of wrecks that are, are, are everywhere, scattered through the Everglades, offshore, etc. So Part of it was kind of the fun of that because you would go around and you go from rec site to rec site. And if you've ever been to Florida, Florida is wild, man. It's just three ecosystems in an afternoon. It's I a mean, special we place a, for sure. Yeah. We were in a cedar swamp. We were in a this what looked like the Australian outback at one point that was surrounded by rattlesnakes. 
And then we were, of course, we were the alligators in the Florida Everglades. I mean, it was just, it was insane. And it was all in the morning. So you could go around and do this, but, and there's still wrecks. There's still parts of wrecks there. There's the reports of the wrecks. There's eyewitnesses, people who found these wrecks when they were kids, they were out hunting with their father and they stumbled across the, you know, the, the, the crashed remains of an Avenger and, you know, the pilots were still inside and, or the pilots or the crew, I should say. So, you know, these were incredible stories that we were tracking down. But again, it's all part and parcel of this incredible puzzle, you know, this incredible mystery of what happened to Flight 19. I, I, I've got to throw this in. How cool is RV Petrol? Because you see pictures of it. And you're like, uh, my goodness. Because Paul yeah. Allen didn't skimp on the toys, did he? When he was. When oh, he was God, no, he built two of them. There's another one, too. <laughs> he built two. It's nice to have that money where you could build a state-of-the-art research vessel and then have a second one just in case. But it is amazing. That was one thing that really impressed me with Rob and and his team. They took us on board and we became part of the team immediately, which was incredible. And the toys are incredible. Uh, You know, the ROVs that they have, you know, you sit there and it's something out of Star Wars. You know, you're sitting in two giant leather captain's chairs and you've got video screens everywhere. You've got joysticks in your hands. It's the ultimate video game. But you know (laughs) that you have, you know, something that's worth $50 million at the end of your fingertips, you know, and you've got it 20,000 feet under the sea. It's amazing. It's truly incredible. But, you know, again, when you think about the fact that this is the only vessel or one of the only vessels in the world that can actually do this, you think how important it is to what we do as historians, especially for things like this, especially if those aircraft are somewhere in off the shelf where petrol or the one or two other vessels that can do this in the world, they're the only ones that have a chance of solving this. So let's get back to George, because in my yeah. notes, I've, I've got George Panessa's name down. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, as we were supposed to this ages ago and many reasons we, we've put it off, put it off. And he, he's the one that sort of stand, stood, stood out as this fascinating character. Do you want to give us a little Yeah, George Panessa was a Marine Corps vet from, uh, I think it was New Jersey. And he was one of the crewmen on one of the aircraft. And when the aircraft went down, it wasn't long after where allegedly, and I say allegedly, and I'll get into this in a second, a telegram arrives at his house. And it says, basically, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, basically what you've been told is wrong. I'm very much alive. And he signs it by the nickname that only the family knows, Georgie. Mm. which was fascinating. And you can see it on the internet. So when we went down to see his family, and this would have been his nephew, I believe we interviewed his nephew, I asked to see the telegram. And when he produced it, it's just kind of a facsimile. It's not the original. So I'm not really sure whether this is legit or not. And I'm wondering, and somebody said, well, maybe it's a hoax. And I'm thinking, well, of a hoax would you you know why would you do that you know that's just cruel but it could have been because of the notoriety over the years spielberg and everything else and in close encounters and all the other film representations that this could have been a prop for something and somehow ended up being given to the family and then somebody in the family who knew that it was only a prop died and then of course it's handed down and then suddenly somebody thinks this is legitimate 
and it becomes part of the files. That's my personal take on that because I haven't seen an original. It's a Western Union telegram, but you can tell just by picking it up, it kind of looks like a movie prop. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's almost plastic, if you will. And that's not what they, what they used. And unfortunately, it seems to be very difficult to try to trace where it was coming from when it comes to the numbers. It's not like the military where you can go back and try to cross-reference everything, you know? But that story continues. Allegedly, Panessa, for whatever reason, ends up in, if he does not show up on this flight, for whatever reason, ends up out in California. And apparently he ends up seeing a couple of women out there, ends up marrying one, et cetera, and lives under an assumed identity. So this is part of what we'll be researching in the next, <laughs> in the next series is to find out, put to rest once and for, for all. And you can see that, you know, as a historical researcher, I'm a little skeptical, to say the least about this. Hmm. But because it's such a wild story and it, it could be plausible in the sense that at the end of the war, you know, you're three months after the war ended. A lot of people wanted to get the hell home. They weren't interested in waiting until their time came up. You know, maybe he missed the flight that morning and somehow decided to desert that morning and, you know, just decided he was going to use the disappearance as a convenient way. But that seems to be a bit of a stretch. Given the fact that there has been so much airplay over Panessa and the fact that he could be alive, etc., we need to do our due diligence and go after the story one way or another. But as I sit here today, I'm very skeptical, very skeptical <laughs> of that, to say the least. But I think it's fascinating, you know? Okay, so no aliens. Panessa's probably dead. No, oh, I'm not saying yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not saying that. But yes, as far as I know, yeah. I mean, we can play along. I mean, if Panessa did it, it's likely, be I don't think there was anything more nefarious than perhaps he just wanted out of the, uh, of the Marine Corps. And took, took the opportunity that finished came up. and took the opportunity. Yeah, 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 that could be it. I know the family, some of the family members have said that they're one of the other, his brother was part of Eisenhower's staff. And oh, yeah, allegedly, and I have to look into this as well, that apparently he was doing stuff with deception operations and things like that. And they thought maybe this had something to do with it. But, you know, I think it's just kind of like broken telephone over the years. You know what I mean? It's just things are getting a bit distorted as the story moves from generation to generation. But we'll see. I mean, you know, who knows? I, I think you've got much more to do because COVID sort of puts the kibosh on oh, everything. Just just as you get, because yeah. you've got you've got another team that's following fish. It, it, it's a fantastic documentary because it's you've got the high tech, but then you've also got the chap's name's gone straight out of my head who uses Barnett. Yeah, Mike. Who, yeah. who uses fish schooling around, you know, reefs and, and wrecks and things as, as ways to pinpoint things. It, it's a fascinating sort of collaboration between the sort of the natural and the high tech. Yeah. And that's the thing. And sometimes you're going to stumble across these things by the amalgamation of these kind of resources. You know, sometimes it's just going to work out that way. And, you know, as you can see, to get back to what I mentioned at the beginning, the idea that the data pool just isn't that thick. And when you don't have a lot of puzzle pieces, the mind can wander quite a bit into different areas. 
and there's a whole bunch of different, you know, it's a Pandora's box of various theories that come out. Now, to be a, a, a good researcher, you have to chase each one of them, no matter, like you said, how skeptical, and you can, you can get it by my tone, how skeptical I am about the Panessa story, if you will. But at the same time, I've got to do it. And at the end of the day, if the evidence is there and I'm shocked and I come back on a year from now and go, geez, look what I found, <laughs> you know, or look what we found. Hey, that's the beauty of research, right? That's the beauty. We research because we just don't know. And that's it. Like I said, I can have my theories, but until I test it, it's just my theory. So <laughs> there you go. So yeah, so there's there's plenty of that. And you know, th this is the fun part about this because we're actually, we're taking the series and taking that research and we're spreading it out now. So what we're doing in the new series is we're gonna tackle all the mysteries of what is the Bermuda Triangle. And the idea is to really, in some ways on one level, I guess you could say challenge that whole concept of a Bermuda Triangle. And also to one of the threads that will be running through the entire series will of course be the hunt for flight 19, but it won't be specifically dedicated to finding flight 19 just because there's so much to do. And also too, when we were working on this and trying to find flight 19, we were stumbling across the story of the Cyclops was a ship that disappeared without a trace in 1918, you know, stratotankers that disappeared. We found other aircraft from different eras and they all have stories to tell, and we're not really sure why they're down where they are. I mentioned earlier about John Meyer, and John Meyer thought he had found the Avengers. Uh, as a matter of fact, he found five of them underwater, not far offshore, all relatively grouped together. And he was absolutely sure it was Flight 19. Until they raised them, and then they cross-referenced the numbers, the serial numbers, mm -hmm. And they realized that they used to station aircraft carriers offshore for training. And these were Avengers that were dumped overboard over a period of five or six months. And they, because it was on station, they were all in the same area. Yeah. So the poor guy, I mean, he really thought he had, you know, <laughs> he had struck gold and he ended up coming up with something that was completely logical. So there are so many mysteries that we have uncovered, if you will, or tapped into just by you know, trying to solve this one other mystery. And so that's what the new series is going to be about. We're going to be taking a look at anything and everything. That sounds just really exciting because that the, the thing that was really cool about that was all the what ifs. We found this other thing, but we can't, we can't look at it because we've, we've only got X amount of time and you've got, yeah, I know it's editing and things like that. We got the news reports of this mysterious bug coming in from, from yeah. China. It's, and you're sitting there going yeah. 18 months after it's happened, going, oh, I know it's going to happen here. We're yeah. not going to find it yet. Well, I'll be honest with you. When we heard about that, when we heard about the mystery bug and we'd have to shut down and everything, we figured, oh, we'll be back in six months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're now, to put it in World War II terms, we're now in 1942. <laughs> so you know we still have we still have a ways to go battling this adversary i think but uh no we're we're looking forward to it we're hoping to get back down to florida depending on what covid will let us do we're hoping to get back down this summer oh fantastic and it looks like it, yeah it looks like it's going to be a really intense summer as a matter of fact as soon as I, I get off this with you in 15 minutes i have a production meeting that i have to go to <laughs> to find out how we're going to peg everything out but it's going to be uh it's going to be quite something yeah we got socked in by covid because it wasn't just the ship but it was also the research all research facilities like the national archives closed down you know navy historical center closed down 
So that really left us in a lurch. And uh, it was just a question of going back and going through whatever we had uh, already assembled and going over it and over it and over it and over again to make sure we hadn't missed anything. And no, we haven't missed anything. It's just, we just need more puzzle pieces. That's all we need. That's all. Well, we should look forward to that. And I won't keep you too much longer from your your prep for your production meeting. Oh, yeah. I think you said when we were talking about this before, you got the whole team back together again. Rob's yep. Rob's involved, minus the boat. Minus um, the boat, Rob will always be involved. Like I said, Rob's got an expertise that very few people in the world possess. Mike Barnett, this has been his passion. Actually, the Martin Mariner, that's his, you know, mm-hmm. that's his professional and personal joy, if you will, uh, or pursuit, passionate pursuit. And then, of course, Wade and myself and uh, Jason Harris, who is our naval, our naval aviator expert, he's coming back as well. So, yeah, we've got the whole band back together and we're looking forward to get back out on the road. Fantastic. So how's that for a rock and roll analogy? There you go. <laughs> and just to the listener, if when we're sitting here geeking out about RV Petrol and, and what Rob did, just yeah. Google RV Petrol 2019. Yeah. And it is like a who's who of Second World War ships they found in six oh, months. Yes. It, it was a, remar- a remarkable season and including the Indianapolis as well, which... Oh, yeah, which was incredible. I mean, when we went on there, he took us on a tour and he took us through the petrol. And everywhere you go through the petrol, they have photos that were taken from the ships, from the ROVs underneath. And the one that stuck out to me, and I'll never forget this, is the Hornet. And it was one of the elevators. You know, on the side of an aircraft Mm -hmm. carrier where the elevators are, they always have the big door, the big garage door, if you will. Well, this garage door was open. And you could actually see the small tractors that they used to pull the aircraft around on the aircraft carrier. And what stuck out to me was they still had their paint and you could read as bright as day, John Deere. Wow. And it was, oh, it was incredible. And I'm sure if you Google it, you will be able to find it. Put John Deere tractor, USS Hornet. And I'm sure you will be able to find it. And it was vibrant. It was vivid. And that's one thing I've never forgotten. You know, it just sat there. And I thought, yeah, that that's what you do, don't you? That's what you do. You go down and you bring history back. It's just amazing. Oh, fantastic. Right. Well, we we shan't keep you any longer. We'll we'll have to get you back to talk again about Black Watch Second World War because we haven't haven't done that yet either, have we? Sure. That would be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lack of air support. That was the key. Of course. More typhoons for the Black Watch. Who knows? Well, there we go. Everybody can drink now. We've said typhoon. I thought we'd get all the way through this. No, are you kidding? (laughs) Dave, this has been a delight. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, man. Anytime. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Hedge Hopping. Just a quick reminder that we're going to put Dave's book one day in August about the Dieppe Raid on our bookshop, which is bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack and every time you buy a book through our bookshop we get a bit of money but more importantly it doesn't go to those jungle-based people either and it goes towards supporting local bookshops who need all the support we can give them so if you can support us in any way whether that's through the bookshop through patreon or just by sharing this with your friends it does this world of good and We can't thank you enough for all the amazing support you've given us. So until next time, thanks so much for listening and we'll be back soon.